That was kind of a nice uh, review, remembering, kind of a survey uh, from the animations of uh, where we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is our, I'm going to run into that if I don't move it. This is our, 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 our closing um, message in the book of Ecclesiastes, this, this, ser- this, this series. And, and uh, I didn't have a, a kid's talk this morning because I actually have a, a kid's story to tell all of us. But kids, if you didn't receive one of the kid's bulletins, and you would like one of those, if you'll put your hand up, we have an usher who will bring one of them to you. A couple of the ushers will bring a kid's bulletin to you if you didn't receive one. Bob Papka, put your hand back down. <laughs> All right. And uh, I wanted to start, you know, I, I actually got, had the chance to attend a, a breakfast with Eugene Peterson, uh, not this last Friday, but the Friday before. And I figured any time uh, Eugene Peterson is, is, is going to be speaking, what he's, what he's got to say is going to be worth, worth listening to. And uh, so went to that, and I was surprised that he, he started out telling us a story that his wife had been reading to him lately. His wife had been lately reading to him from that um, uh, deep and theological volume, The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. I wanted to share a, a, a brief excerpt out of, out of that story with you this morning. It comes out of chapter 8 in which Christopher Robin leads an expedition to the North Pole. All right? So Pooh finds, so Pooh gets up one, one morning and he's wondering what this day is going to hold and he stretches this way and he has a bit of uh, breakfast as you can imagine and then he, he goes off to find Christopher Robin. As he approaches Christopher Robin's house, there he finds Christopher Robin is putting on his big boots. And this is surely good news because the big boots mean there's going to be an adventure. And so Christopher Robin's having a bit of a hard time. He's trying to pull on his boots and he can't quite. And so Pooh Bear sits down with his back up against Christopher Robin so Christopher Robin can lean up against him and pull and pull and pull hard and get those boots on. And what that means for Pooh Bear is he's already had a very useful day. And so... Now, once, once uh, Christopher Robin has his, has his big boots on, he makes this grand announcement. They are all going to be going on a great expedition. And, of course, this great expedition includes everybody, because, you see, that's really what the word expedition means, is a long line of everyone. And so... Pooh Bear runs off to to gather some of the others and he gets to Rabbit's house and he tells Rabbit, we're going on an expedition. And uh, he'd heard from Christopher Robin that the expedition was to find the North Pole. And so he tells Rabbit that we're going on an expedition and this expedition is something about finding a, a pole. Or it might have been a mole. He's really not sure, but it really doesn't matter. And so the animals all get together, and they're all there going off, beginning their expedition, right? There's Christopher, Robin, and Rabbit up at front, and there's uh, Pooh and Piglet, and, and of course Tigger too, and there's Kanga and Roo and Eeyore, and then, uh, then all of Rabbit's friends and relations bringing up the rear. And so they're all traipsing along and having a good time, and it's a beautiful day for an expedition. And, uh, of course, there's a few distractions along the way. And all of a sudden, Christopher Robin hears the, the uh, stream up ahead. 
And of course, a, a, a stream, a raging stream could be dangerous. This twisty stream with high rocky banks, very dangerous indeed. And so Rabbit and Christopher Robin are at the front of the expedition and they, they wonder what to do. And also it's a good time for Rabbit and Christopher Robin to have a, a, a private conversation because uh, Christopher Robin, you see, can't, isn't quite sure that he would recognize the North Pole if one was actually standing in front of it. And so he wants to ask Rabbit what, what um, maybe he remembers. And as they're talking, they both agree that both of them did know what the North Pole was, but they can't seem to remember anymore. But they decide together that it must be, by definition, a pole that somebody has stuck in the ground. And so having that settled, they, they, uh, they're, they're, they're about to return to the others, but there's all this commotion going on, you see, because Pooh uh, um, Bear and Piglet are just uh, uh, conversing together, and there's Roo, he's, he's washing himself in the stream, and Kanga is quite excited because this is the first time Roo has washed by himself, and Owl, he's busy telling uh, uh, Kanga an amazing anecdote that she's not listening to, and Eeyore is describing how he's generally just opposed to the whole idea of washing in general and wants to know what Pooh thinks about that, but in the midst of all that, there's a, a shriek and a splash, and Rue has fallen into the dangerous stream with the rocky banks, and Rue is splashing about, and Rue is saying, look, Mom, see me swimming, look, Mom, see me swimming, and, and uh, all the animals are trying to figure out what they're going to do to get Rue out of the water, and, and oh my goodness, uh, um, they all have varying degrees of success, so we see Piglet, he's standing there jumping up and down saying, oh my, oh my, and that doesn't seem terribly helpful at all. Uh, Al is going on talking about um, what the, the, the ramifications of, of sudden immersion, but not really doing anything about it. And uh, Kanga is just saying, Roo, Roo, are you okay? Which, which Roo replies to, Mom, see me swimming, see me swimming. And uh, Eeyore, Eeyore is the practical one. Eeyore wades into the water and faces upstream so that he can hang his tail down, and there with his hair, tail hanging down that Roo could grab onto. But of course, Eeyore is not looking and doesn't realize that, that, that Rue has already washed three pools down while he cheerfully cries out, Look, Mom, I'm swimming, I'm swimming. And uh, Rue's, or, or rather, Eeyore's feet are getting cold, and he's wishing that somebody would hurry up and grab his tail, which isn't long enough to reach Rue and therefore isn't quite up to the task at hand. Well, Christopher Robin and Rabbit come, come running back to join the group in the midst of all of this. And uh, Rabbit is saying, somebody should do something. Somebody should grab something long and, and run further downstream and stretch it across the stream so that, like Eeyore's tail, but more up to the job, Pook, or, or rather Roo, could grab onto it as he floated by, or swam in Roo's terms. But Pooh Bear is the hero of the day because Winnie the Pooh is already found a long pole. And Winnie the Pooh has already um, gotten downstream. Somehow he wandered that way. And when Kanga joins him in order to help hold the pole, he and, and Kanga together stretch out that pole over the stream and Roo grabs it and is able to pull himself back onto dry land. And then he says to his mother, Did you see me swim? Did you see me swim? Well, while this other commotion is going on, Christopher Robin is staring oddly at Pooh, and he says, Winnie the Pooh, where did you find that pole? To which Winnie the Pooh sort of shrugs and says, oh, I don't know. I just found it somewhere and picked it up because I thought it might be useful. And 
Christopher Robbins says, well, Winnie the Pooh, that's not just any old pole. That's the North Pole. You found it. That's what we're looking for. That was what our expedition was all about. Winnie the Pooh, you have found it. And so Christopher Robin takes the pole and he sticks it back in the ground and he attaches a note to which says, for anybody who would come along later and observe this, the North Pole found by Winnie the Pooh. Pooh found it. And there they all, they all celebrate, clap poo on the back, and everybody's having a good time. And after a few more interesting anecdotes by Owl and a, and, and a bit of confusion by Piglet and some gloominess by Eeyore, they slowly make their way back home again. There is the great expedition, expedition in search of the North Pole. Now you're saying, well, that's a wonderful story. What in all does it have to do with Ecclesiastes? Well, you see, life is a lot like Winnie the Pooh. Life is a lot like that in that we are off on a great adventure looking for something, although we might not be sure what we're exactly looking for. It might be a pole, it might be moles, we're really not sure, and it really doesn't matter. But the fun is in the search, the fun is in the hunt, and there are those among us who have more experience than the others, who have uh, more authority than the others. These are the voices that we look to to help us understand and make meaning. And so while we're in the midst of this frantic search for what we're not sure, there are these voices around us that would tell us, well, this is it, or that's the thing. And they might be a celebrity. They might be on daytime television. They might be a sports star. They might have won a championship. They might just be very successful in lots of money. But for whatever reason, these are the voices. Maybe it's out of media. Maybe it's somebody close to us personally. But these are the voices that to us have, a, have the ring of authority to them. And when they say, well, this is the thing. Here it is. We've found it. Well, we all gather around and we clap ourselves for having found apparently what we were looking for. And then we go along on our merry little way without it making a whole lot of real difference. That's what Solomon has been up to in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's been looking for it. And he says, folks, if you follow my way, if you follow my expedition, I did not find it. I didn't find it. Don't go my way. Don't take my path. Don't follow my map because I didn't find what it is that you're looking for. But it can be found, and that's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion that we arrive at in chapter 12 and verses 9 to 14. It's a different section of chapter 12 in that this one is from the voice of another person. It's like the story has been told, the search has been described by Solomon up to this point, but now somebody else comes along. The narrator of the story comes in and tells us what is the story really all about? What is the point that we must not miss? Where can our North Pole be found? And a voice with greater authority than Christopher Robin is here to tell us where. As we, as we read here in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 from, from verse 9, I want you to look for two things as we're going forward. What is the authority of this voice? Why is it that we should listen to this answer? What do, do these verses tell us about God's wisdom, about God's word, about God's way? And then from there, what is it that it tells us 
is that way? What is it that tells us is the one thing? In the midst of all this nothing that Solomon has described, what is the one thing that is our everything? Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, then uh, you'll find us on page 478. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 from verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher, was, the, the teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads or prods. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there's no end. Of much, and much study wearies the body. But here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Father, if this is the end, if this is the everything, if this is the whole, Lord, would you open it up to us? Would you help us to see this morning, to hear from your word, which is dependable, which, which is what we can rely on, which is a voice we can hear and trust and give ourselves to. Lord, would you show us from here the whole of what it is to know and to walk with you, to worship and to walk, to, to fear and to follow the God who made us and redeemed us. Lord, be our shepherd right now in this moment of our hearts toward you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12 closes telling us something about God's word, about God's wisdom, about God's way. First of all, if this is the way to, to, to follow, then what of that way? What of that word? He, sa- he, he says that the, that the teacher was very wise. He, he, he pondered, searched out. He looked for just the right words, the NIV said. And that just the right words, actually, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's a little simpler. It's a little more fun. It says he searched for delightful words. And Ecclesiastes is that way, isn't it? Ecclesiastes is written, it's, it's, a un, it's unique in biblical literature for the delightful words that it makes its point with. I mean, to think about the phrase, everything is nothing, has worked its way into our language. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life under the sun. In chapter 3, that litany of life's seasons. The allegorical onset of old age in chapter 12. These are all very memorable in the book of Ecclesiastes because they are indeed delightful words. They are delightful in the way... Ecclesiastes is not so well-known. It's not so attractive because of the easy answers it gives. Rather, Ecclesiastes is so appreciated because of the delightful way in which it refuses to give them. Ecclesiastes is, 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 is well written with good words. It says that these words are upright and true. That these are words that can be reliable. Not only are these words delightful, but God's word is dependable. God's word is dependable not only in the terms of it is upright and true, but in the following verse, in verse 12, it says that, that God's words are like a firmly driven nail. Now, you've probably hung pictures before. Maybe you've hung the same picture multiple times. 
Yes. Uh, you're hanging a picture, and you're hanging it in drywall. Maybe it's a heavy picture, and maybe it's a little nail. And, and, you, and you, you, you put the nail in, and you, and, you, and you set the picture down. The picture keeps coming down because the nail did not hold. It, it pulled right out. Or maybe it seemed to hold just for a little while. And then when somebody bumped the wall or there was a vibration, the whole thing comes crashing down. Because drywall is not a terribly strong thing, is it? A nail is not a firmly embedded nail that is placed in drywall unless there's some sort of anchor system with it. However, if you took that nail and you went through the half inch of drywall and you got that nail into a good solid two by six, now you've got something. Now you can hang something on it, right? There's a firmly embedded nail that can be dependable, that will not pull free, a nail that you can hang something on. Think of a a tent peg as well. It's the same word, a nail or a peg. Think of a tent peg when you go camping. Maybe it's going to be windy, and you put those tent pegs in, but wow, the ground was so soft. This was very easy today. You could just sort of push them in, and then they went, and Yes, easy they came in, and when the wind blows hard against that tent, easy those pegs come out. Have you been there? Well, maybe, maybe the ground was so hard that you had to pound those things in. In fact, one of your tent pegs even went right into a tree root that was just underground, and you pounded that thing in, and you thought, wow, this ground is very, very hard. And you never, ever get that tent peg. It's still there waiting for the next person who's going to use that campsite. They have got one tent peg for sure that is firmly embedded, right? It's dependable. It's solid. It's not going anywhere. It's something that can be depended on. And like firmly driven nails, like a firmly driven ten peg, is God's word in that it is dependable. God's wisdom, God's truth, is not only delightful, but it is dependable. It is not only dependable, but it is dangerous. He, he takes that na- firmly embedded nail simile and, and runs that alongside of the image of a cattle prod, a sharpened stick. Now, cattle can be stubborn creatures, and sometimes you're, you're behind them and you're, you're poking them just a little bit, just a wee bit, not, not, not terribly hard, but just enough to, make, to let them know that you're still there and you still mean it. And God does that. God's word will poke us and provoke us. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's reassuring. Sometimes it's comfortable. And sometimes it gets you right there in the ribs. Or sometimes it's a thumb right on your chest that says, you're the one. Sometimes it's like the prophet Nathan speaking to David. And he tells a nice story about sheep and somebody stole this man's poor lamb and David is enraged and caught in the story and caught up in the story. And then Nathan the prophet says, David, you're the man. You're the one. And God's word does that to us sometimes. God's word is delightful in all of his genres, whether prophetic or poetry, whether, whether history or apocalyptic, whether in open letters to a church or personal and private correspondence that we get to listen in on. God's word is delightful in its various forms. And God's word is dependable. And God's word is dangerous. And part of that danger is how it would warn us and redirect us and change our lives from one direction to another. As Solomon's example will tell us. That dangerousness is the goal of God's word, spoken of in verse 13 and 14, in that God's word is to direct us, is to change where we will listen and where we will go. 
Because God's words are wise, because God's word is dependable, that's a, a warning then to find your answer here, to find your truth in God's word than other places. Now, some of the students in our midst are delighting in verse, in verse uh, or was it, verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there's no end, and much study wearies the body, and here after another season of school, they say, yeah, that's right. Doesn't the Bible here say, hey, much study wearies the body? Come on, Dad. Well, it's telling us, beware. It doesn't say to be ignorant. But Solomon went far and wide and found lots of nothing. And when you want the real answers of what really matters, when you're looking for that one thing that is everything, when you're looking for your North Pole that everything else will be lined up against and you will chart the rest of your course in reference to that North Pole, you can only find that in one place. You'll find that in God's truth, which is dependable and will be dangerous, will redirect you in what it concludes that one thing is. Because here it is. Verse 13 tells us the goal. And it's interesting, as I pointed out before, that, that this, this conclusion is arrived at by somebody other than Solomon. But the conclusion is that the goal is this. Now that everything has been heard, verse 13, here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now that phrase I want to unpack a little bit. That phrase, first of all, is emphatic. It doesn't say fear God, keep his commandments. It rather says God is the one you must fear. His commandments are the ones you must obey, the ones you must follow. There's all kinds of commandments, but it's his commandments that matters. There's all kinds of, of things you can fear. There's all kinds of people you can fear. God is the one we're to fear. Now, sometimes we have a little trouble with that word fear. Does it mean I should be afraid? Somewhat, yes. We often d describe it in terms of reverence because it is, is that holy fear. It's a providential fear. It's a good and safe kind of respect kind of fear. Along with fear, you could wrap right in with that word worship. Genuine worship, not merely a casual activity, but sincere worship that does worship because it fully takes in the bigness and the greatness and the grandeur of God and the smallness of humanity. Myself in contrast. And, and the, the, uh, the worthlessness, the inability, and yet also responds to the love and the care and this grand and transcendent God is also the God who is near. I fear not only because he is great, but because he is near and is actually involved and cares and watches and is concerned. Take this fear and follow his commandments. Worship God. It's God we would worship, and it's in his ways that we would walk. There's all kinds of options offered to us. Yet Ecclesiastes says, learn this, mark this down. Of all the choices that you have, of all the things that you could do, do his things. Follow his ways. Worship God and walk in his ways. Not only is that emphatic, but the two are inseparable. How do I know if I worship? It's not an attendance thing. Worship is not about attendance, although worship probably shows itself in why you're here. Your being here is probably part of your worship, but that is not the sum of it. 
To worship God is to walk in his ways. Deuteronomy chapter 10 first makes that point. This is not merely a New Testament Jesus thing. Deuteronomy chapter 10. So now Israel, what does the Lord ask of you? What does God want? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways. Worship and walk. Fear and follow. To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own well-being. It is our best that we walk in his ways, that we walk with him. John 14, Jesus put it this way, if you love me, you will keep his commandments. To say, well, I worship, but I don't really, I'm not really walking with the Lord. That doesn't make sense. Because the way that we worship is in our walk. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12, that in light of the mercies of God, our response to God's great mercy toward us in his salvation, that Jesus died for me, that I would again have relationship with God. The response of my heart to that, the response of my heart is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is our worship, our reasonable service of worship. Our walk is our worship. Our following is the way that we step into, the way that we practice, the way that we live in our, our fear and our reverence of God. This everything is emphatic. This everything is inseparable. This everything is the whole. This is kind of a neat, more of those delightful words. You remember how, how Ecclesiastes start in verse 2 of the first chapter? Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Everything is nothing. And he comes back here and he says, you know what your everything is? You know what your whole is? In the NIV it says the whole duty, and again it seems to give us a list. The whole duty of man is this. No, no, the whole of man. One author, Gordanus, put it this way. This is not merely the duty of man. This is the essence of man. To worship God and walk with him is what we were made for. It is our whole. That's where we find our fulfillment. That's where we find our everything. It is our whole. It is not merely just something that we should do, something we should add in. In the midst of our compartmentalized lives, I will squeeze that in too. Squeeze a little of worship time. Squeeze in a little bit of, of walking with God too in the midst of everything else. When this is the whole. This is it. This is our North Pole that everything else orders itself by. He says, fear God and follow him. Worship and walk in his ways because that is your everything. That one thing is your everything. Not only that, but this is where our reward is going to be found. This is what is going to be worth it all when we see Jesus. That the reward is, will come when God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. Why is it that I would walk with God? Because God will judge everything. And I say, oh my goodness, wait a minute. That sounds like a guilt trip. That sounds like the fear factor. That sounds like I better obey, I better do the right things, because if I don't, God's going to smash me like a bug. Well, God will judge. He is the righteous judge. He is the holy judge. He will overlook nothing. He is aware of everything, and there is nothing hidden from his sight, and he will bring every deed into judgment, whether it's good or evil. And at some level, that ought to scare us. It ought to frighten us, except, except for this. I can be assured 
that every evil thing that would be judged by God has been judged by God. Isn't that why my Savior died for me? Isn't that why Jesus died on the cross? And if I could, if I could apply that into your situation right now, there are things that you did yesterday that nag at you now. Let's say, here I am in worship. Here I am singing to God. Here I am pretending that I'm okay, and yet I know me, and I know where I've been, and I know what I did. And yet, that too has been judged. There is nothing hidden that others don't know about that only you know about, and when you put your head on your pillow at night, that comes back, and you can say, that too is why my Savior died. When you remember that there's nothing hidden from him, remember then that there was nothing hidden from the cross. God has judged all of my guilt in Christ, and yet God still will judge. And we know that all of us will, even as believers, even as redeemed and saved and washed, forgiven in Christ, still we will appear before a judgment seat of Christ. And that judgment seat, the word is bima, it's a reward seat. The Olympics are coming up in London this year. God is going to have an Olympic reviewing stand that is going to be way above whatever they set up in London. It's going to be that, that same bima seat. It's the recognition stand. It's the award stand. And there God will award and nothing will be hidden. Now think about this. The sacrifices you make. The things that you do, are you discouraged that no one else notices? Nothing is hidden. God notices. Are you tired in life and in work and serving in family? You don't think that you matter, that it really makes any difference. The little thing you do doesn't really matter, except it matters greatly to God. You say, well, I don't know if it has any effect. I don't know if it really makes any difference. I don't know if it'll really change the world. It'll change the community. I don't know if I'll even change my neighborhood. I don't know if it matters to anybody. But if I'm worshiping him and walking in his way, that matters to him above all. And we might not see the end of it. We may not see the impact. We may not have any idea of the temporal or eternal difference that it makes, even as Job did not. I love the line of Job when he said, oh, that I wish my words were written in a book. He didn't even know this was being written down. He didn't know that you were going to read it and someday be encouraged in the midst of your trouble that God was also faithful to Job. He didn't know that you were going to know that. And yet, look at the difference. Job's continuing when he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I will trust God no matter what he seems to allow to me. I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I will trust him anyway. And God used that far beyond anything that Job would have imagined. You and I don't know, but what we do know is that God notices that nothing is hidden. Rather than that being something that causes you to hide from his presence, let that be a truth that causes you to run to his arm. Let that be a truth that causes you to give yourself away knowing that it'll be worth it all because it's worth it to him if it doesn't seem to be worth it to anybody else. We don't see the difference God is making, but you can know this. Your sacrifice in Jesus' name, your following in Jesus' way makes a difference to God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, can what is straightened, can what is bent be straightened? One day, by God, it can. Is there anything in this nothing that can satisfy? Yes, worship God and walk in his ways. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because this is what you were made for. 
There's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to sacrifice. And there's a time for reward. There's a time to be vilified. There's a time to be vindicated. What then about the injustices and the inequalities and all the things that are not right in life? The fact that one day the righteous judge will judge and nothing will be hidden and everything that's wrong will be made right. Even if we only get tastes of it and glimpses of it for now. What can I depend on when life seems so random, so unpredictable, when I don't know what's going to happen next, what I can depend on is a firmly embedded nail. What I can depend on is a solid tent stake. What I can depend on is that God's word is delightful and dependable. Dependable even if dangerous. But most dangerous to the ones who would ignore it. And so, Ecclesiastes 11 told us to seize the opportunity. To grab hold of opportunities while we have that. How do I seize the opportunity in worshiping God and walking in his way? I'm not sure exactly what that'll look like for you, but um, what it looked like for me, even yesterday, was getting up early on Saturday and sitting down again and reading John 3. And I've read John 3 a bunch. You know, that's the Nicodemus story. That's the, that's the God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son chapter. That is the chapter of all the chapters. We read that. I sat down and read it again f- fresh and imagined myself as Nicodemus coming to Jesus that night. My heart was stirred again in a different direction of God's love even for me. One of the ways it looks like for me, seizing an opportunity is to grab my prayer directory. You call it a photo directory. I call it a, a, a prayer directory. The book with your names and your faces. Working my way through that book, praying for people. Some of you that I know better than others. Some of you that I know exactly what you're in the midst of or as much as you've been able to share with me. And others, I'm not really sure what's going on there. But being able to work through, thinking about after, after, after almost seven years here at the church, there's a lot more I realize that I know about our family and what's going on in our family than I used to know. And that could drive me to despair. It could drive me to prayer. It could drive me to, to grab hold of God and the one that I care about and bringing them together in prayer. Taking the opportunity to do that, not waiting too late like Solomon did. You know, in the beginning of this series, I asked you to imagine Solomon as an old man and full of regrets. They say that um, the Song of Solomon was perhaps written in Solomon's youth. The Proverbs was written in the strength of his life. Ecclesiastes was probably written in the end of his days, toward the end of his life. Imagine Solomon as an old man telling his story. A story that is sad and full of regret. A story, a story of missed opportunity that cannot go back and be reclaimed. Why is it that he says with such passion, remember your creator when you're younger than I? Because he, he feels it's too late for him to go back. He knows that he's missed it, and yet it's almost like, well, he didn't have to. I mean, Solomon grew up. He, he saw His father David's walk with the Lord. He saw David's foolishness, but he also knew David's faith. He also knew and heard David when David cried out, when I refused to confess my sin, I wasted away and my vitality was drained. But when David confessed his sin, the Lord forgave all of his guilt. 
And so there's Solomon standing at a crossroad of his life. David, his father, is gone. It's his life to walk with God now or not. And, Dave, and, and, and King Solomon, rather, stands at a crossroad, and he, he could take this lesser-traveled path, but it's not as attractive as the main path, as the main road, and yet he knows that's God's way. And yet he's afraid of what he's going to miss if he doesn't go the main road that everyone else is traveling. Because he fears what he might lose, what he might miss, he takes the common way and becomes one of a long line of everybody. And when he gets to the end of it, he knows that he's missed it. But he has so missed it, get this, that somebody else has to come along at the end of the story and tell what Solomon missed. Because he has missed it. And Solomon, by what he can tell us, and even by what he can't, Solomon would say to you and I, don't take the common way. Don't follow a long line of everybody. The main thing, the one thing, is to not let all of the nothing distract you from your everything. To worship God and to walk in his way. Let's pray. Father, that is what you call us to. That is what you have not only call us to or, or we could think expect from us, but Father, this is what you have opened to us. This is what you, you, you give to us in the forgiveness that's in your Son, in the reconciliation, in the bringing of us back to you. It is so that we could know you, so that we could worship you so that we could walk in your ways that we were made to walk in and know you. Father, thank you that you welcome us back. Thank you that you have received us in Christ Jesus, fully forgiven, fully embraced, and that all of our feeble attempts, these you remember. These you will honor and even reward. Father, as we continue in worship, as we, as we would give back to you something out of that which you've given us. Lord, even our offering may seem feeble in our eyes. But Lord, take it as a part of us given to you. The representation of our labor or even that which we would survive and live by. And Lord, we will entrust that to you because we want to worship you because even in this, we will walk in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.